Following the Spanish-Ottoman truce of 1581, the nature of Mediterranean violence underwent an important shift. The imperial naval battles of the 16th century gave way to a 17th century age of Mediterranean piracy that left the seas open to corsairs from the Spanish Empire, Ottoman Algiers, and Morocco. A fascinating but underappreciated dimension of Mediterranean piracy was that it brought literally millions of ordinary people, uh, Muslims and Christians, men and women from all walks of life, into lives of captivity and enslavement across the sea. Christians were enslaved in North Africa, Muslims were enslaved to the north. On this episode, we'll talk to Professor Daniel Hershenson about his work on captivity and the economy of ransom in the early modern Mediterranean. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Zoe Griffith. On this episode, we'll talk to Professor Daniel Hershenson about his work on captivity and the economy of ransom in the early modern Mediterranean. And what Daniel does in the book is to show how, uh, even though the vast majority of these captives never regained their freedom, the hope and possibility of negotiating uh, a ransom to pay for a sort of hypothetical wished-for freedom compelled captives to stay in contact with their families and communities on the other side of the Mediterranean. So as we'll talk about in today's episode, um, the correspondence that this generated was extremely important in linking together two supposedly antagonistic sides of the Mediterranean, the the Muslim and the Christian. So this is, um, I think, a really nuanced and fascinating way to move beyond uh, one-dimensional approaches to Mediterranean history that we're more used to, um, either as a sort of diametrically uh, divided space, divided by religion, or else one that's kind of uh, entirely fluid and, um, you know, irrelevant or uh, irregardless of, of religious identity or, or antagonisms subsumed to the market. So these uh, 17th century captives, the individuals and networks that mobilized in what he calls a political economy of ransom, really knitted the two shores of the Mediterranean together in these really important and interesting ways. Uh, so Daniel Hershenson is an associate professor at the University of Connecticut. Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me here. Absolutely. This book, I think, comes out uh, at, a, at a great time. It really complements um, a resurgence of interest in piracy, Mediterranean, um, uh, Corsairs in the Mediterranean, uh, work by Josh White that came out in, I believe, 2016 is a nice complement to this book on the Western Mediterranean. Um, maybe you can just tell us a little bit about the nature of captivity for the people that you're looking at, how it differed from our common conceptions of Atlantic slavery, but you know, what did it mean for these people who were enslaved? In the se- in the 17th century. Yes, yes. So I mean, we it's it's a great question because you know we are recording this episode in Chicago. We we are in the U.S. We tend to think about slavery through the north through the American or Atlantic prism, and it's such a bad prism to think about slavery. It's such a bad model because it's so radically different from slavery systems across the world and like throughout history. When I talk about Mediterranean slavery, I should say first I'm thinking about Muslim and Christian slaves in the Mediterranean. I'm not thinking about sub-Saharan slaves. And why why is that important? Because one of the things that uh, that that define Mediterranean bondage and bondage of of Muslims and Christians 
is the distance. The Mediterranean was small enough uh, to the degree that captives could always, potentially at least, uh, communicate, interact with their families, something that sub-Saharan slaves, uh, and there were millions of sub-Saharan slaves in North Africa and in Europe, could never do. Uh, that option was not there. It's not only that, I mean, you know, one of the definitive terms uh, in, in the context of, of Atlantic slavery is a natal alienation, you know, I mean, that didn't exist in the Mediterranean world. What is it? Can you explain what that means? Captives were never fully detached socially from their home communities. Not only they could write home and receive uh, uh, communication from home, at least in theory, also there were always other people that spoke the languages, their languages or some language that they could somehow manage. There were always merchants, ambassadors, envoys, uh, priests, uh, caddies, uh, other people that 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 shared some some kind of background with so they were i mean you know it's it's, it's a horrible experience obviously it's slavery there, there is nothing to say about that but it's very very different uh from from atlantic slavery another huge difference is that in the atlantic race became the new religion in the mediterranean slavery is religious uh, the advantage, in inverted commas, of that is that the commodities we're talking about are capable of, of converting and, and, being, and through that being re-humanized or decommodified. And in that case, they can you know, slowly open a process of, of social integration, of manumission, of developing spectacular careers. So this is another major difference. I mean, I would say, just like to sum up these differences, that if, if, if in general we think about slavery as a system of labor, in the Mediterranean, uh, slavery was not only a system of labor, but also a system of commu communication. So the book, if I understand correctly, kind of grew out of, uh, you realize that there's this archive of, of correspondence. And uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about, um, you know, how are these captives or slaves communicating with their home yes. communities, their uh -huh, societies, uh -huh. yeah. So, so, so captive, again, Muslims and Christians, uh, uh, literate and illiterate, wrote a lot. Uh, and if they couldn't do it themselves, someone else did it for them. And if their kin couldn't read, someone else did it for them. Um, so it started because, because Mediterranean slavery had an economic, it wasn't a religious phenomenon, but it had a strong economic uh, aspect to it. Captives, enslaved captives were captives. They could potentially be sold back um, to their king, to their kin, to their country. And that required communication. That, requ that required them interacting with, 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 with their family or with their sovereign, inf uh, providing them uh, the information about their place of captivity, uh, providing them uh, how much money their, their owner wanted for them, or alternatively, what is the, where is the slave their owner wanted to exchange them for enslaved? In which galley is he pulling the ore, or in which city is he working at? Um, so that's where communication started. But then we know that only 10 or 15% of, of slaves were uh, uh, ransomed, uh, actually returned. And is that equal kind of on both sides? Sort or? of, that's what it seems Interesting. like. Yeah, okay. uh, um, uh, the experts on slavery in Spain suggest they talk about 10, 15%, and the same, that's what people say about uh, Christians in the Maghreb. Even though we have this image that many more Christian, that more, it's, it, it, okay, we can talk about it later. It's, it's a product of doc the documentation, or it's absolutely. Always, yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, you know, so that's where it started, ransom. People had to provide information or later send money, etc. Ask, ask, ask favors from the king, ask favor from the sultan, from the pasha, etc. But then 
people wanted to keep in touch with home. And people were engaged in other form of economic business while they were captives or after they converted or uh, people engaged in espionage, sending information home. Or uh, captives, in some case, vouched for the true religious identity, and again, I'm signaling inverted commas up in the air, of other captives who converted to Islam in North Africa, uh, and they did so by writing letters of recommendation which the, the converts kept with them should they be cap uh, captured one day by Spanish forces or returned to Spain. In this way, they could present these letters to the inquisit inquisitors, and there it says that so-and-so uh, converted, but deep in, his, deep in their heart, they remain good Christian and they engage in good deeds, uh, helping other Christians. So there was, sorry to interrupt, but there was no um, sort of awareness among the captors that like, oh, if we let the captives communicate with each other and with ba that that was a problem. I mean, there wasn't any effort to kind of stem these communications. To the contrary, to the contrary. And, and, you know, like your question made me think about another thing. Um, uh, so we tend to think about cap captivity, you know, through like modern images of the, of the modern prison and whatnot. Uh, captives were free to roam around the city in which, they, you know, many of them were uh, were rented out for other people that employed them. Uh, even if they work in the first half of the day later and uh, they could come and go at least during part of the day from their prison. So there was a lot of, there was the, they enjoyed again, inverted commas, a lot of mobility. Captives were extremely mobile, both within the cities where they were enslaved and also across the Mediterranean because many of them pulled the ore on, on royal or, or not royal galleys. Mm -hmm. Uh, so they sort of like new cities across the Mediterranean ports and, and cities pretty well. I mean, so what kinds of information then do we get from this correspondence? I mean, you say uh, that people are communicating their locations, communicating uh, how much their ransom ought to be worth. Like, what do we what can we do with that sort of information as historians? I mean, for example, so, you know, you how you get like once in every few years or even more, uh, uh, Muslim slaves in Mallorca or Cartagena, one of the Spanish uh, Med Mediterranean cities, Ma Muslim slaves there would be baptized by force mm -hmm. uh, or the bodies of their friends would be uh, desecrated. And in such cases, they immediately wrote home mm -hmm. and complained. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, I am enslaved in Mallorca. They would write to their family, which would take that letter the Algerian Pasha, let, let's say, who would immediately expedite uh, a warning to the Spanish king that should the situation not be amended immediately, slaves, Christian slaves from Mallorca would suffer. Wow. Uh, so this is an example of how uh, information of like humble folks, I mean slaves, yeah, yeah. Uh, and their, their kin, uh, immediately initiated diplomatic uh, uh, interaction among the highest uh, uh, highest echelons of, of, of the state. Right. Yeah. Uh, so this is one example. Then you have information about people who converted. It's very important in both contexts, both in the Muslim and Christian context. In the Muslim, you know, there is the, 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 the notion of uh, mafkud, that person that is absent, but similar uh, practices exist in the Christian side. I mean, what do you do? Are the wives of captives who disappeared or converted? Can they divorce? Can they manage property that otherwise they couldn't have? Um, uh, so this, this sort of information is extremely important uh, for like boundary management of the communities from which the captives were taken. I mean, at the same time, one of the really nuanced and important uh, conclusions of the book or, or findings of the book 
is how at the same time that these boundaries are in some ways policed like the region is integrated by by the movement of the information by the uh the efforts of people um trying to ransom these captives um and the ransom economy is something i had never thought about and i find it really fascinating so you say only about 10 to 15 percent of the captives were ever ransomed um but how did it work like it, it seems to have mobilized a great many people even if it didn't even if most people remained enslaved right right so we think about slave about piracy and slavery as disruptive and obviously they were disruptive in the lives of people that were the revic- the victims uh, and we think about ransom also as a dividing activity right christian zir muslim zir uh, and and it was that was the intention behind it but the unintended results of this practice was to to link together in 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 a million ways uh north and south uh you know morocco ottoman algiers and and italy italy, italy spain and france and portugal how did ransom work uh so you had i think you know you can we can distinguish between four kinds of factors uh religious orders friars uh merchants family members and rulers and you know This division already suggests to us uh, four different frameworks to conceptualize what captivity was. It was a religious problem, friars, it was a commercial issue, it was a political issue, it was a sentimental social issue. Um, and it was all of them, obviously. And while, you know, whenever the friars emerge in the documents, it seems mostly as religious redemption it's nothing it's not about manumission it's not about the salvation of bodies it's about the salvation of souls uh, of community members at the same time the friars engaged in commercial activities they exported American silver and clothing and you know the very first the very beloved Spanish hats that in the Maghreb were a hot uh, commodity and other things to 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 North Africa um, they knew that whenever they were attacked by people that objected the project of redemption and suggested let's 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 establish a fleet and send it to Algeria they knew to uh, to convince their 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 opponents that actually they were uh, that their economics were in place and very efficient so who who were the objectors there were different parties in in Spain that said I mean this is a huge waste of money um uh, we can you know use power instead of uh, paying for for captives you can um not only that um, uh, people were suggesting that saving captives introduced you know it was it, it, it entailed the moral pollution introducing Muslim homosexual practices um another claim that was uh, made against the friars was that the Muslims the, the Algerians the, the Moroccans uh, forced them to redeem only the Uh, the all the sick and the meek rather than the young the strong and and the healthy um, and the friars al- always knew how to respond to such claims yeah. uh, so you know they engaged in a religious project but they always they were capable of like maneuvering other discourses similarly merchants who obviously were economic actors yeah. also uh, mobilized religious discourses uh, you know because uh, trade with the infidel was was uh, prohibited according to canon law and uh, in order to do so they had to to to, to petition from the ruler uh, ad hoc uh, trading licenses with the Maghreb interesting and to get this they had to explain that they are uh, doing this to run some captives from the Maghreb never mind if they did or they didn't or they also engaged in other uh, economic activities moreover the king that posed trade with the Maghreb citing canon law whatever issued these licenses 
again and again and again. And, and did also, he, did he receive any? And he received ten yeah. percent commission okay. from whatever <laughs> economic activity that yeah. took place. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, parents that uh, old widow from Mallorca who runs uh, who exchanged her son with a Mallorca with a Moroccan widow that her son is that her son is enslaved in Mallorca. These women. The, uh, they might be they might transfer money too and in that sense they're economic actors but obviously they are not economic actors or at least it explains to us nothing about them about their interest their emotional involvement in the process if we just reduce it to reduce it to economics yeah. uh, finally rulers I mean you know they did a lot of things uh, by 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 ransoming their subjects they claim sovereignty in the last uh, third of of the 17th century when the Alawite uh, dynasty takes over. Um, uh, Moroccan sultans try to be extremely involved in ransoming captives. Um, they also ransom Algerians and, and Tunisians. And you know, in so doing, they, don't, they, they claim um, spiritual guardianship over the Mediterranean, making you know, claims counter to that of the Ottoman sultan about the caliphal title. Obviously, the Ottomans were far stronger, but and yet, I mean, there are so people did many things when they engaged in ransom, um, and it was it was a multi a phenomenon with with, with with many sides to it, yeah, many, many meanings to it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it seems like you mentioned there's a kind of imbalance in the sources, and I'm just wondering how that plays out in in what you're able to, you know, I mean. I think there's a gender component that you allude to. There's a religious component that you allude to. Um, and so, yeah, I think that all of our listeners are, are always very interested in the limitations of, of sources. So. Right. So let me start by saying <laughs> that I'm speaking as a Hispanist sure. uh, who engages in, in, in you know, in, in I'm interested in North Africa, in, in North Africa's relations with, with Spain. And, but so first, I mean, one unique uh, feature of, of, of Spain, Italy, Portugal and France in this context are the religious orders, uh, particularly the Trinitarians and the Mercedarians that were established at the turn of the 13th century but were uh, institutionalized and incorporated into the royal apparatus in, at the turn of the 17th century, which means that from then on they started producing, producing serial documentation. Today, all digitalized, you know, it's it's very seductive. Of course, it's very easy <laughs> to work with it. And Where is uh, it held? I mean, what sort of form was it held in before it was digitized? Uh, just like bundles of documents. Okay. I mean, very easy to work with. Okay. Um, uh, you know, they, they that you can easily reconstruct uh, structural uh, uh, st structures, right? I mean, I mean, this is serial documentation. It's amazing. Yeah. You have nothing similar to that in the uh, Moroccan or Algerian uh, context. Yeah. Then you have uh, inquisitorial documents that are mostly, I'm talking about trials of renegades that are super rich and you know, they, they uh, recount sales and resales and resales and different, and, and, and different forms of exchanging hands that were not economic, I mean, bequeathing and giving gifts and whatnot. Can you tell, there was a really amazing story of, of one guy, I can't remember his name, who just, he got, he went all over the place. So actually, I mean, it's not its not only him. I mean, I, like every slaves about whom we have a little more information than the use. Let me start elsewhere. One of the most uh, amazing documents for the history of captivity are captivity narratives, 95% of which were written by Europeans. Um, and one of the, the moments they plot with, you know, lots of pomp and whatnot is the moment of initial... Uh, sale in the slave market and you know and uh, it's sort of like it's obvious because they find themselves in the place that uh, sub-saharan africans are in uh, europe 
and they describe many pages for for this episode and it gives the the the, the, the impression that slaves were sold once but actually most of the sales like like in in, in the you like in America took place in in semi-formal places not in the slave market not under the the, the supervising gaze of the state not these were not necessarily sales um, uh, you know um, uh, and often slaves could play some role in their own exchange preventing it by pretending to be crazy or uh, to the contrary convincing their masters that that it's a good deal that they would work hard uh, whatnot um, uh, so slaves constantly they constantly moved um, uh, between mass and then you know across the Mediterranean slaves are also rented daily like from one side from to one the person other. to another okay uh, and they would work for another master and by the end of the day they would return to their own master and they had the right to keep some of, of part of the fee that uh, that they made slaves were slave life were also organized uh, seasonally uh, so you know like slaves uh, pulled the ore on in the galleys during the summer and then worked in the cities during the winter and 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 that also entailed different like they uh, with so with this with the change in seasons they also the the, the ownership of them changed uh, uh, during the winter suddenly they had the potential of negotiating ransom something that was completely impossible during the summer so would you say i mean that whole ransom economy the people who were mobilizing around that it was a kind of seasonal endeavor like you could send a to some degree, yeah, yeah. Everything, yeah, everything worked better in the summer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, no, that's interesting. So, I mean, it seems also that, you know, most of the captives that you're able to get a, a very clear picture of, um, and most of the people involved were, were men, it seems to be the nature of the sources. But there was one figure in particular, um, a girl, I guess, named Fatma, who, I mean, her story is just one of the most kind of poignant and uh, brings together so many facets of the work right right okay so fatima we don't know her family her family name fatima was uh, the daughter of uh, a high janissary official um, she was when she was 13 um, she was captured she was she was on a on a ship in the mediterranean the, the genoese fleet captured her we don't know exactly the, the precise circumstances it's possible that they were on on the way for the hajj but like it's really unclear do we know where she was originally from Algiers. Algiers, sorry. Yeah. Okay. And I think that I mean I don't think. I mean her father was the governor of uh, Bona. Got it. Uh Bona in English. I'm not sure about uh, I'm not sure either. Uh, <laughs> uh, a city that was subject to Algiers yeah. in the Maghreb. Um she was sold to a Jewish couple in Livorno that held a number of slaves and uh, from there she managed to send the word back home. Her father negotiated her uh, ransom. A Corsican merchant that traded with Algiers on a regular basis uh, uh, was responsible to, to return her home. Uh, let me stop here. I'll get back to her in a second. I want to, to introduce three more threads um, uh, that seemingly are not unrelated. The bastard son of the Spanish Marquis de Villena uh, was captured by Algerian pirates. Uh, he was trying to arrange his ransom. He failed. Uh, from there, he was sent uh, with his master. Following his master, he, he ended up in Istanbul. And at some point, he converted and died there. Uh, third story uh, is that of the uh, Bay of Alexandria. 
a very old day of Alexandria who was captured by the Spanish Sicilian squadron together with his two wives and an entourage of slaves and whatnot. Uh, this is, was not his first captivity. He was already captured like years before that by the Spaniards. Um, by that time, by the second captivity, he was old and unhealthy. Uh, so this is the third story. And the fourth is that of uh, three Trinitarian friars who uh, traveled, as they often did, to Algiers to ransom captives. They already negotiated a ransom of 136 captives. They paid everything. They were re ready to board and leave back to Spain, when in the last minute, the Algerian divan uh, uh, ordered their arrest. Seemingly unrelated stories, but actually when you start looking at them, you see that all of these stories intertwine either uh, through negotiation over the ransom of these people, or uh, one of them was arrested as, as a response to the, to, the, to the conversion of another. Uh, so let's go back to Fatima. Fatima's uh, ship stopped in, uh, in Calvi, in, uh, in um, Corsica, back then uh, Genoese uh, colony. There, the bishop saw the little girl that was so beautiful and just knew that she, she was a Christian. She was a Christian. He had to convert her. Uh, he converted her, and she was baptized as Madalena. Once a uh, Christian, she became a, co a community member, not a commodity anymore, and she could not be ransomed. I mean, it just was impossible. The Corsican go-between had to... Uh, uh, travel by himself to Algeria to, to deliver the bad news. Uh, and in response, the Algerians uh, arrested uh, the Trinitarians. So the Spaniards, uh, Mon one of the Trinitarians, Monroy, uh, wrote excessively. Uh, some of his letters were published. He pulled all the strings he could. When he heard the news about the arrest of the, of the Bay of Alexandria in, Sic in Sicily, he saw an opportunity. He believed that this was the key to his ransom. I mean, this is an Ottoman high official. He worth a lot. Uh, he started pulling all the strings he could in, in Madrid. The problem was that the son of the Marquis de Vigena, uh, his father was also trying to get the Bay to ransom his son. So the, suddenly, like, two coalitions formed in Madrid, uh, both competing over the Bay in order to ransom their candidates. The problem was that the old bay was so old and sick that he ended up dying in his <laughs> oh prison <God>. cell. <laughs> anyway, this is very tragic. I don't know why I'm we are sorry. laughing. Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm sorry. So there, there are many things here. I mean, first, it tells us something about about the system of uh, slavery in the Mediterranean. You know, this this is an exchange system. This is a system. This, these are uh, mechanisms for the insertion of people into networks of exchange. But the system had complementary mechanisms for the removal of people from networks of exchange. People, for example, people could, could convert or could be forced to convert. And once that happened, they were not, they were rehumanized. Do we know in, in Fatima Madlena's case, I mean, do we have any idea how she felt about the conversion? No, but she was, she was a child. She, she was 13 years yeah. old. So, I mean, yes, the Christian source, some of the Christian sources says that she converted out of her own volition, but, I mean, give me a break. Sure. Um, uh, but, we, but we don't sort of hear from her anything about... I, I, yeah, okay. I'll get back to that in a second, but let me just say that some of the Christian sources, you know, say perhaps she converted out of her volition, but... Um, uh, so the Christian acknowledged that... But so one, one point that I wanted to stress was that, that nature, that unique nature of commodities in, in, in a place where slavery is religious, it's not racial. Uh, you cannot change your race yeah. uh, in the pre-modern world. You can change your religion, at least in theory. The other thing is that such conversions occurred like once in a while, forced baptisms or conversions. And I said that, I, I mentioned that like in such cases, uh, slaves would write back home and complain to the rulers about it. 
and rulers would you know war war on the other side that they will avenge unless so we are talking about negative reciprocity mm -hmm. and you would assume that you know such reciprocity just escalates endlessly right i mean one blow three blows you know <laughs> let's kill the guy and, uh, but interestingly what we see is that negative reciprocity turns into positive one and that such instances of violence allow the party to negotiate the norms which they take for granted most of the time because both sides assumes that slaves deserves uh, certain religious privileges uh, the right to practice their religion the right to bury their dead according to ritual the, the right not to be converted by force the right not to be baptized etc 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 so through such violence ins instances the norms were codified to the degree that by the end of the 17th century the spanish king uh, orders all the governors of his Mediterranean territories to assign burial spaces to Muslims uh, to the degree that in the 18th century there is a mosque in Cartagena uh, in Spain um, uh, and at some point the Christians break in and break the lamps and like whatnot and the slaves write to Algiers and the governor of Algiers immediately warns the Spaniards that if the situation won't be amended he's going to shut all the churches in Algiers and punish all the slaves from Cartagena and eventually the mosque was shut, shut down like a few, a few decades later, but for several decades, in the 18th century, the mo there was a mosque operating in Cartagena. And Fatima's voice. Yeah. So Fatima was free. She was, she was freed. And so we, we can compare her to, 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 one of the to all of the Trinitarians, actually, who were enslaved. Mm -hmm. The Trinitarians left so many documents. They wrote notes to other captives within the city. They wrote, they wrote to the governors of the Spanish uh, garrisons in North Africa. They wrote back to Spain. They wrote to the papacy. They wrote to Genoa. Um, their letters were published. They wrote intelligence reports to the Spaniards depicting the, the, the castles in which they were arrested. Mm, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, just like there is abundant information that they produced. We don't have a single document in which Fatima talks to us. Okay. Do we, I mean, so once she's freed, is that the end of her story? No, okay. so... We know that seven or eight years later, she was married to a Christian in Corsica. And then I have several petitions from Spain from around the time when she, she was married, uh, submitted by a woman whose name I can't remember now, that claimed to have been her mother, that uh, had certificates of her conversion from Rome, and that petitioned the Spanish king to help her to help her re reunite with her daughter. But, but this case is, in is in indicative uh, in, in terms of, of, of the uh, uh, imbalance, the as asymmetrical representation of the experiences of males and females in captivity. So, I mean, this is a case of a free uh, female previously enslaved that didn't leave a certain any documents in her own you know, first-person voice. Interestingly, women are much more haired uh, they they leave testimony much more as 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 ransomers uh, because often it is the men men has m higher prospects of being ransomed and it's usually the women who ransom them and then they negotiate with the crown ask for help uh, interact with widows wives or whatnot on the other side etc. Yeah, that uh, raises in my mind what may be a very stupid question, but was there also a class element to the ransoming? I mean. Or were families kind of paying out of pocket for ransom very often, or was it? No, this is else? this is this is a very good question because I mean the reason for which we know so much about the case of Fatima and Monroy is that Monroy was I mean it was not it wasn't like 
huge personality. What he was, he, he was connected. He was well connected, and the case also involved the son of another marquis and uh, the Bay of Alessandria. So yeah, totally. Uh, but we have enough information to see that also humble folks um, uh, are engaging in such interactions and that the lives of people are, are entangled in similar ways also on the, in, in, in the lower echelons of, of society. Uh, only we get um, a lot less uh, information about it. I mean, it doesn't make itself to the archive uh, so much. People, were, people went into debt to... to to collect money uh, for the ransom. Actually, interestingly, at least in the Christian side, we have a number of captives who were, you know, they left Algiers or Tetuan or whatever, and they were immediately arrested once they hit a Christian city because because of their debt, they couldn't pay. <laughs> and on another level, you know, the captives that were ransomed by the Trinitarians and the Mercedarians were obliged to, to walk in processions across Spain with the friars for a full year, and when they escaped, the friars asked the king to arrest them. So, uh, so yeah. So, and 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 on another level, bondage didn't end with with captivity. I mean, again, going back to the debt, we have a number of of cases of captives just like begging alms for for months, for years after their return, uh, presenting their documents of captivity, their former petitions, their wounds. Uh, you know, speaking in 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 in, in gibberish Turkish to prove their previous captivity, uh, et cetera. That's amazing. Um, I mean, so I guess to, to wind us up, like how did this system end? I mean, when do we see the end of this kind of moment of integration of a kind of captive Mediterranean? Right. Um, in the 18th century, Algiers and Morocco are... Like European powers uh, using force, uh, sign peace agreement with them. They become more integrated uh, into the European economy. Uh, on the other hand, at some point, Spain also signs a peace, peace agreement with, with, with all of these powers, with Algiers being the last. And, and you know, once piracy stops being part of, 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 of the Mediterranean world, I mean, you don't, you don't have captives anymore. Yeah. And what, what would you say kind of took its place, if anything? I mean, does that mark a sort of additional bifurcation of the two sides of the Mediterranean, would you say? Well, I mean, I think that it, it, it requires us to, to figure out what, what, what are the main social dynamics that takes place, that, that, that takes the place that once captivity and enslavement uh, uh, filled in, mm -hmm. that shaped that shapes mm -hmm. the Mediterranean. I mean, during the 16th, 17th, 18th century, it's slavery. That's the main interface that, that connects, that mediates between Islam and Christianity. Yeah. Something for, for one of our other listeners to take up, maybe. Um, well, thank you so much, Daniel. This has been a, a great conversation. Uh, congratulations on the book, which is called The Captive Sea, Slavery, Communication, and Commerce in Early Modern Spain and the Mediterranean. Um, and yes, we really appreciate your taking the time. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Um, so for our listeners who would like to read more about the subject, um, Daniel will be providing a short bibliography of uh, related sources. Um, again, we can uh, point to Joshua White's work on uh, piracy and law in the Ottoman Mediterranean, I think, which is a great compliment. Uh, you could read these books side by side and you would really... Um, have the sort of full scope of, of the 17th century Mediterranean. Um, so thank you for tuning in. Please stay tuned for our next episode and goodbye from Chicago. <laughs> 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 <laughs>